All right. Listen, um, if you've been in the church for any length of time, any length of time at all, then you've probably been wounded by the church. You've been hurt by the church. And by, when I say church, I, I don't mean as the institution, although potentially um, as the institution, but the church is made up of people. And here's the thing. While we hate to admit it and we hate to say it, we are broken people. The church is a collection of broken people. We say that the church is a hospital, right? The church is a place where broken people come. And we say it, come as you are, right? You don't need to clean yourself up to come to the church because this is the place where, where, where healing and grace and forgiveness happen at the foot of the cross. Come as you are. And when we come as we are, guess what? We come with baggage. And, and, and we're broken, and broken people hurt each other at times. Sometimes it's accidental. Forgot what it's like to hear the kids downstairs. They're having a good time. Sometimes it's accidental. Unfortunately, sometimes it's intentional. But, but there's hurts in the church. And you know what? When there's hurts in the church, Satan absolutely loves it. Because here's the deal. The church is supposed to be this great picture. We just talked about this with marriage, and we said during our marriage series, this is why Satan hates marriage so much, right? Satan hates marriage so much because marriage is supposed to paint this beautifully grand, awesome picture about the, the love that God has for his people and the way that Christ loves the church. And it's supposed to paint this great picture. And because it's supposed to paint this picture, Satan hates it. Well, Satan hates unity in the church also. And Satan loves it when we hurt one another in the church. When, when our hurts in the church cause divisions, when they cause people to walk away from the church, or they, they cause people to linger in the church, but to do so in, in a way that has them in pain and withdrawn. Satan loves that. Because that, that's not what God intends for his church. Here's one of the things that he says. Jesus says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know the old hymn, right? They'll know that we're Christians by our love. Your love for one another will prove that you are my disciples. When we love one another well in the church, that speaks to a watching world. That shows them something. It's of critical importance. Not only that, but when we're unified, we are better at carrying out our mission. Right? Jesus told Peter and the disciples that, that the truth of Christ is the rock. And on that truth, that Jesus Christ is the one and only God. On that truth, that he will build the church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Satan loves it when we have hurt and wounds and division in the church because it sullies his name, it robs him of glory, and it it allows him to operate without fear of the church pushing against his gates. And we know, we know that this battle is against him, right? For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. We're fighting against mighty powers in the dark world. We're fighting against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are not fighting one another in church. We are fighting the enemy of our souls, who wants to rob God of glory and ruin the mission and the ministry and the unity of the church. 
And it's easy for him to do sometimes. Because here's what we do. We stop at that truth. Hey, we're broken. We're broken and we're messy. And broken and messy people do broken, messy things. And so these things happen in the church. But here's the deal. We're not just broken. We're not just a broken people. We're also a redeemed people. We're not just a broken people, but we are redeemed people that are called to something bigger. And we are called to something better. We are called to struggle against our spiritual enemy. We are called to unite with one another in the name of Christ. And we are called to be on mission together for the sake of his kingdom. And so as we go through this series, I want to I firmly plan us here. Right? I want to firmly plant us here in this, in this space where we understand that, that what we're doing is, when we talk about church hurt, that we are very specifically doing spiritual warfare. You might think that I am your enemy. I might at times feel like you are my enemy. I don't feel like you're enemy, but whatever, it's an example. Um, I might at times feel like we are at odds. But here's what I want us to understand very clearly. We are not fighting one another. As we go through this series and we try to figure out how to heal from church hurt and we try to figure out how to strive for unity and we try to figure out what God wants from us, we have to understand that what we are doing is something called spiritual warfare. That's why we've started with asking you to pray daily. That's why we've started with asking you to pray and fast daily, to cover the series, to cover one another in prayer and beseeching God for his glory in this place because what we're doing is warfare with the enemy of our souls. And so I want us to live there for a second, and I want you to to firmly plant that in, in your heart, and I want you to know it in your mind, and I want you to do something about it in your soul. Because I promise you, your enemy is. He's looking to chip away. He's looking to cause division. He's looking to be divisive. He's looking to ruin what God is seeking to use for good. What we engage in, listen, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but what we engage in is spiritual battle. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, um, starts his chapter on, uh, it's a book on missions and the need for it, but he starts his, his, his uh, chapter on um, prayer this way. He says, life is war, and prayer is your wartime walkie-talkie, Right? Prayer is um, not just this flippant thing that we do for a second every day. It's not just grace that we say as we sit around the table. Those things are great. They're fine, whatever. But prayer, listen, understand the prayer that we're asking you to do. Life is war. We are at, at war with the enemy of our souls. We are in a spiritual battle. And prayer is our wartime walkie talkie. So let's dig in and let's do that together. It's my encouragement for you. Okay, and as we dig into the series, um, we're, we're going to start here, and, and I just want to start with this simple theological truth, and we're going to unpack it from Ephesians 4 today, and then we're going to look practically at how church hurt kind of creeps in, and then Pastor David, over the next couple weeks, he and I will, will just unpack some, some, some different things that God has to say about hurt and healing and moving on, uh, but, but today we want to start with this truth. Write it down, um, get, it, get it seared in somehow. The antidote to church hurt is unity. 
The antidote to church hurt is unity, and it's what God calls us to. We're going to see that in Ephesians 4. Look at this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is Paul talking in Ephesians 4, and um, he's flexing his um, apostolic muscle, right? And he starts with, oh, by the way, in case you don't remember, in case you forgot, I am actually a prisoner for the Lord. So everything I'm going to ask you to do, and you're going to say, but Paul, that's too hard. He's shutting you down now because he's saying, oh, by the way, I am beaten and thrown in jail for the Lord, for the unity of the church, and for the sake of God. Satan has no business, even though the world is coming against me. I give him no room to operate in my life. So please don't tell me, this is Paul now, please don't tell me that it's too hard. Because as a prisoner for the Lord then, this is what I'm urging you and calling you to do. This is Paul clearly flexing some apostolic muscle. He's like, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, he tells us in Corinthians. I've known what it is to be hungry. I've known what it is to have a little bit to eat, right? Um, I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been shipwrecked and left out at sea multiple days. Paul eventually would be beheaded for his faith. I mean, literally would lose his head for his faith. And he says, don't bring me that week's off. Don't, don't tell me why it's too hard. Don't tell me that it's too difficult. Don't tell me that, that we don't have the time, effort, energy, emotional, whatever. Just stop it. He says, as a, as a prisoner for the Lord then, from my place of authority, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. To live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And, and what's interesting is, is there's a shift in chapter 4. In Ephesians, there's, there's six chapters in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is talking about this calling that we've received. Who we are now in Christ. What's true about us now. And then in chapter 4 through 6, he starts to shift. Then This then is what you should be and how you should do because of this truth. But, but here's what we've learned so far. It's a little small, but you can see it. Here's here's what he shared in the first three chapters of Ephesians, right? We were dead in our transgressions. Now we are alive in Jesus. We were, as as non-Christians, we were objects of the wrath of God. The full wrath of God was due to us. But in Christ, we've been shown God's mercy, We were stuck. We were caught captive to following the world and the way of the world and the pattern of the world. We did what seemed right in our own eyes. We did what seemed natural. We did what everybody else did. But he says, now in Christ, you stand up firm for Jesus. We were God's enemies. Now we're his children. We were enslaved to Satan, whether we knew it or not. We were enslaved to Satan, and now we have freedom in Christ to break every chain, freedom to break everything that comes against us. We followed our own evil thoughts and desires. We played with sin, we did what we wanted, but now we are raised up with Christ to glory. And so Paul says, listen, listen, listen. In light of 
everything that you've received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Jesus, God in Christ, has done all of these things for you. He's moved you from life to death, enmity with God, to being friends with God, to being his children, to being a slave to sin and ensnared in Satan, to being free to live a life that honors God, which actually will bring your heart true joy and bring glory to God in all of this. He says, because of all of that, then I urge you, live a life worthy. Can you imagine what it would be like if everyone that was truly born again decided to live a life worthy to the calling that we've received in Christ. Can you imagine what that would be like? But we do this where we're like, yes, we're really Christians. We really did accept Christ. We really did commit our life to him. And then what happens is this weird thing where we just kind of dabble in good enough. We just kind of dabble in good enough. You know, we have this attitude that if we do enough, then it's good enough. It's close enough. And Paul says, man, listen, I am in jail and about to be killed because of my faith. And I'm encouraging you to follow my lead. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And a life worthy of the calling you received means that you give up everything for this life. Man, far too often we dabble. I'm guilty of it. I don't mean to throw stones. I'm guilty of it. I gotta be honest with you. it's It's problematic in my life and I'd imagine it is in many of yours too. But we're called to something better. We're called to be different. We're called to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And it really is a big deal. I can tell you this, that I can name a few people. I won't because it would embarrass them. Um, But I can name a few people who have dedicated themselves to living this way, to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received in Christ. And I can tell you that when when you, and you know them too, when you look at people that are living that way, listen to me, it is beautiful. And it's convicting. Because they're not the weird ones. They're not the outlier. They're just doing what they're called to do. But we keep going. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And so, well, how do we do that? What do we do to live a life worthy? Paul says, well, if you want to live a life worthy, he follows it up by saying, here's the deal. Here's what you need to be. If you want to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, then here are the things that you need to do. And it's all about unity. And it's all about internal. It's all about the church in itself. Now, we know we're supposed to be outreach. We know we're supposed to be on mission. We know we're supposed to be evangelistic. We know about the Great Commission. But here, Paul's focusing on the internal health of the church. And he's saying, look, 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 look. If, if you want to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, then you have to practice these spiritual graces with one another. He actually lists um, six spiritual graces in this text. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I just want to say this before we break these down. We're going to break these these six graces down. But before we do that, I want to say when he calls us to unity, though, there's a misnomer here. He's not calling us to unanimity. 
right? The, the difference is this, um, and I think our elders are an exceptional example of this. When we're called to unity, that does not mean we're called to 100% agree with each other about every specific thing. David played, uh, David didn't play, Nicole played, um, but, but at, at David's instruction, we played three, uh, four old school hymns this morning. There were some of you in your heart of hearts that you said, yes, thank you. I miss those songs. I love those songs. I want to hear them every week. And there were some of you in your heart of hearts that said, oh, really? No drums? No guitar? We're just going to play old hymns today? Like, like, we may not agree on that. And you know what? That's all right. We were joking that those hymns were new ones and people hated them too. Right? It just is what it is. But, but here's the thing about this, right? We don't have to agree on this. Some of you are like, I want the kids to be upstairs all the time. Some of you are like, I've been staying away until they came, the, the children's programming came back because I want them to go downstairs. Right? doesn't matter. But, but the idea here is we don't have to agree on those things. But being in unity... Being united doesn't mean we agree on 100% of things, but what it means is that we move forward together and that we strive to be bound together in these graces. So I love the way our elder board operates, right? Like, like some people think that, that our, our elder board, we just sit around the table and we're like, yep, oh, everybody agree, yep, we all agreed, move on. Like, man, we wrestle with things and we don't vote. Right? It's not a matter of voting. Well, you know what? It was, it was four to three, so we're going to go ahead and do these things anyway. No, no, no. We make sure that we're together. And, and, and being together does not mean that everybody is excited. There have been times where I have had to say, you know what, guys? I'm not excited about that. But if that's where we are, then I will gladly go with you. And I will own that decision, and I will champion it, and we will go together. And there have been other times where other people have said the same thing. And then there are times where somebody says, look, I just have unease in my spirit. And even though I'm the only one, I I have to play the trump card and say, we can't go. And the answer is, okay, then we scrap it and we move on. And we keep praying and we keep digging in. But, but this is a, this, this unity that we're talking about for the church, the elder board is a great example of this. And it has been in my tenure here. And I'm, I'd imagine it was before I got here because it's largely the same men. Unity does not mean that we all agree 100%, but it means that we commit to moving forward together. And we use these graces to do it. Paul shares these graces. First is to be completely humble. Humble. When you're humble, it means that you purposely put yourself in a secondary position. Actually, in this way, you put yourself in the third position. God is first. Everybody else is second. I come in third. And it's not a matter of thinking poorly of yourself. Right? But it's a matter of, of, of thinking of yourself less. I think it was Piper again. Um, might have been Moody, but I think it was Piper who said that, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. The idea with humility is that I put other people first. It's an otherness. And it's the first grace. 
The second one is to be gentle. To be gentle. The problem with gentleness is that we, we sometimes, um, yeah, we just get confused about this. It's, it's more like meekness. We think meekness, we think weak. In fact, I've, I've heard many well-intentioned pastors um, trying to get the men of the church riled up and get the men of the church stirred into action. You know, they'll sit up here and they'll say, you know what, God doesn't call you to be meek and, and, and quiet. Wait a minute, time out. Like, whoa, I read that the meek inherit the earth. The, the New Testament describes Jesus as meek. The problem is we don't understand what meekness is. And oftentimes we look at meek and, and, and we, in our minds, we think it's timid and weak. Really what meekness means, if you look at the original language, what meekness means is this, reserved strength. Right? The Bible describes Moses as meek. Yet Moses led a people out of Egypt. The Bible describes Jesus as meek. Yet Jesus defied authorities and cleared the temple and was the son of God. Meekness is, in gentleness, is reserved strength. Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Doesn't mean it's appropriate in the moment. Um, the, 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 two, the two examples that, that we think of for this word in the original Greek are, are a gentle breeze. We know the wind has strength. Here in Vinton, we know that. If you've lived here a little bit longer than I have, right? There's windstorms and trees and tornadoes and whatever else. We know that the wind has strength, but, but when there's a cool, gentle evening breeze, it's refreshing. It has power, but it's reserved. Think of it like a broken colt, right? It has power, but it's reserved. And then we're told to be patient, long-suffering. The spiritual grace of patience is this. Endure under hardship without acting out. That's what it means, right? To endure under hardship without lashing out. Patience, right? And you're like, oh man, I am really patient when um, everything is going well. Like, I can really be patient, right? When um, everything happens that I want it to happen and everything is smooth sailing and easy going. But no, no, no. The idea of patience is this. I can endure difficulty without it breaking me. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another in love. And here's the thing. When you bear with somebody... Again, it's not some smooth sailing thing. Like, like nobody says, man, I went on a Bahama cruise with my best friend in the world and we got along really well and it was awesome and people brought us food and there was entertainment and there were no snags. Everything was great. We really bared with one another. No, right? You went on vacation. But when you bear with one another, like we're going to go on vacation in a little bit and I'm going to ride in the car with Riley and Travis, Aubrey, I'm, we're going to bear with one another. 
in a 19-hour car ride, right? We're going to bear with one another because that's not smooth sailing, right? But bearing with one another means that what we do, actually, it's going to be lovely. And we're going to listen to good music, I'm sure, that they're going to pick. It's going to be awesome. Um, But here's what's going to happen. We bear with one another. What that means is is that even when it's hard, I don't use that as an excuse to quit. See, we know these one another's. We say these things all the time, right? We say, oh, well, we're going to be patient, we're going to be gentle, and we're going to be meek, and we're going to be humble, and all of these things. We say them, but we're pretty flip about them. But, but here what Paul's saying is, no, 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 you've got to really understand what these are. You've got to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received in Christ. You're made new. You're different because of Christ. You're free from sin. You can stand on top of these things. This is true for you. And he says, so here's the thing. Really be humble. Really put other people's needs ahead of your own right? Really be gentle. Really reserve your strength. Be gentle and meek. Really be patient. Forbear, right? Bear with one another because you love them. Don't let one thing, don't let a problem be a reason to break it. Bear with when it gets hard. Make every effort That word there is endeavor. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit binds us together as Christians. And and right here, God's saying, make every effort, endeavor to keep it whole. You know why you have to endeavor? Because Satan is going to endeavor to tear it apart. Satan wants to ruin it. You, church, because you're living a life worthy of the calling you've received, you make every effort as much as it depends on you to hold it together. And the power of the Spirit, for the sake of the unity of the Holy Spirit, you make every effort to hold it together through the bond of peace. Like These are the spiritual graces that Paul says. Look, this is the antidote. We're going to talk about wounds and hurts all through this series, but the antidote is unity. And these are the graces that it takes. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Through the bond of peace, you do these things. And you're like, but Matt, it's hard. I know. Matt, you're annoying sometimes. Look, I get it. Like, it's not the way I like it. I get that too. Right? See, sometimes when we think about unity, we think, well, why can't we just figure all of this out so that we're all in agreement? Well, anytime you get like more than five people in a room, I don't know how many people are in your family, but when was the last time you tried to figure out what kind of pizza to order? Right? We don't agree. Right? We might all come to agreement and order the pizza. Right? We're all 100% in on getting the pizza and eating the pizza, but we don't all agree that this is the best place, the best kind of crust, the best toppings. But we all move forward together because pizza's worth it. You can say amen. Right? Well, the church is worth it. If pizza is worth it, then the church is worth it. I mean, it just is what it is. Come on. Like, we know this. And we're called to live this way. And he keeps going. He says, there's one body. This is why. He said, you, you make every effort to live a life worthy of your calling, right? There, and, and you use these spiritual graces to do so. And here's why. Here's why. Because there is one body that we are all a part of. And there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope. 
There's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You strive for unity because we are all one whether we like it or not. And I got to tell you, it's difficult for me. It's hard for me to fathom how we have these difficulties when when we have a group of people. And and I'm not talking about blessed hope. I'm just talking about the church because church hurt is rampant. When I took a job as a pastor, you know, most of you know this, but six years ago when I came here, I'd never been a pastor before. I'd been an elder and I'd served in leadership in the church, but I'd never been a pastor before. I didn't know how to do it, right? Um, Elders were gracious and and, and we walked through things and the congregation was gracious and still learning how to do this. But, But ultimately when I, at... 38 became a pastor there were people long term church people and here was their advice to me get this don't don't do it like okay why not because it will end badly well that's encouraging thank you no no you don't understand don't be a pastor Because, because it won't end well And, you know, we stop and we think about that. It's how many church examples do we know? How many examples do we know where churches have been ripped apart by hurt? I think we have that in our history. As a different body before the forming of this one so many years ago. Right? So so some of us are well-versed in that. but, But that was the advice. Don't be a pastor because it won't end well because it'll be ripped apart. And I remember thinking, well, that's just foolish. And now I remember thinking, man, I was, you know, like as we read more, as we see things in different churches, and as it happens across the landscape, it is not unusual for church hurts to fracture a congregation. And maybe it dies because of it, or maybe it survives, but it certainly isn't storming the gates of hell like it's intended to do. And I struggle to figure out how people who have been called to this new life in Christ, we are free from sin. We are no longer enslaved by Satan. We have moved from enemies of God to friends of God and children of God. How we could worship one God. We could have the same Holy Spirit living in us. We could be submitted to the same Lord Jesus Christ. We could all be clinging to the same hope of his return. Like, how can that be true? And yet, we can let Satan have his way here. But it happens. And here's how it happens. I'm just going to share with you practically. Practically some areas where church hurt will reign in the church. Um, And we need to be really careful about these. The first one is gossip. When I was an elementary school counselor... One of the things that I had to deal with most was gossip, right? People talking about people. It was almost always fourth and fifth grade girls. I don't know, it just is what it is. If you're a fourth and fifth grade girl, I'm sorry, but gossip is a thing you have to deal with more than most. I had to deal with gossip. So-and-so said this about me, and so-and-so's talking about this, and they're spreading this rumor, and they're telling this lie, and, or this really happened, but they have no business telling everybody else about it, and number one thing I had to deal with is an elementary school counselor. Guess what? Sometimes as a pastor, it's kind of the number one disciplinary thing that we have to deal with too. Gossip. James says this, right? The tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. 
And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it's set on fire by hell itself. It's a problem in elementary school. It's a problem in churches. And James knew that. That's why he told the church, man, you got to tame the tongue. Bring it under control. Proverbs tells us, look, a troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Like when you gossip, there is only one intention, strife. A gossip goes around telling secrets, so don't hang around with chatterers. This is the word of God telling us, like, listen, this is divisive and it's intentional and stop it. But when we gossip in the church, right, except we do it, I mean, we're sneaky. We do it in prayer requests, like, oh, small group, we'll pray and we'll pray, oh, let's pray for Pastor Matt. Oh, God, you know that he's really struggling with his lust issues and you know that his kids really don't want to have much to do with him and you know that, it's an example, guys. Okay? And you know all of these things. Amen, God, help him. And everybody else is looking around going, well, I didn't know all of those things. Like, like I mean, so, so we, we sanctify it by using it as a prayer request or doing these other things. But ultimately what we're doing is, is we're gossiping. And when we do that, here's what happens. It drives people from the church or they stay in the church and they shut down. And then instead of being active participants in the church, they sit, they soak, and they sour. No longer useful for ministry. No longer storming the gates of hell. No longer endeavoring to fight for the unity of the church. Gossip puts a stumbling block between somebody else and the grace of God. Don't do it. Leadership. Leadership can wound. I'm not talking about things we disagree about. I'm talking about harshness and hardness. I can tell you that, that one of uh, my many character flaws, right, is that I have a tendency to not be gentle, which is just me trying to be a nice way of saying that I can be harsh. I, I, I can tell you there are many occasions where I've had to apologize. I think there are a couple occasions where I've stood up here and apologized to the congregation, um, certainly there are times when I've had to reach out to individuals to say, you know what, that, that's not how I meant for that to be or come out or whatever it was. Um, luckily, I do that less than I used to, but still a whole lot more than I wish I had to. But leaders can wound, right? We're called to be gentle and humble, right? Here, here's what Jesus says, right? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? He'll leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that's lost until he finds it. Like it's this attitude of, uh, of value and worthiness that sometimes leaders, myself as pastor, staff, elders, sometimes we're not as good at expressing as we'd like and that causes wounds and fractures in the church. Rejection. When people come here, Oftentimes they come here broken. And we're all broken, but I mean, some people come here really broken. And when we come broken, if we feel rejected, pushed away, like we're unworthy, that can cause somebody to walk out of a church and never walk back in. 
Here's what Paul tells us. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this morning, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Measure yourself by the faith that God has given us. Don't judge. Don't reject. We talked about rejection. Judgment comes next. When we judge people, and we do this, right, because they look different than us, we judge them because of their past. We, we judge them because of decisions they've made. We judge them because um, they, don't, they don't fit our mold. When we do that, what do we do? We give them a reason not to come. Or we give them a reason not to engage when they're here. And if that's you, and you've been you felt rejected, you felt judged, then, then what happens is you want to draw back. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't draw back. If you feel judged and rejected, then I get it. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's perceived. It doesn't matter. It's what you feel. But here's what I want to encourage you in. Don't pull back. Lean in. Fight for it. You say, but Matt, I shouldn't have to. I know. But do it anyway. It's worth it. And false teaching. Nothing kills a church faster than false teaching. False teaching rips a hole in the church. And again, I'm not talking about preferences here. I'm not talking about styles here. I'm talking about falsehood. Here's what Peter says. But there are also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. False doctrine will wound. And it wounds people that know the truth. Unfortunately, even worse than that is it secretly wounds people that don't. Which is why your first answer when there might be something false is not to run away, but to confront Bring it to the elders. Talk to the staff. Talk to the pastor. Um, here or any other church. I'm, I, you know, I don't worry about us, but, but the, the, the reminder is the same everywhere we go. Because if there's something false, we don't just say, oh, that's, that's false. I'm out. Because what about the people there that don't know? Right? There may be a time to break fellowship. There may be a time to say, this is too far. We've made our concerns known. And now it's time to part. But we strive and we struggle and we fight. We endeavor to keep the unity of the church, God's church, pure and holy. Because if people are there that don't know better, it's dangerous to just leave them there. Right? But, but we have those things. Okay, but couple of quick things I want to encourage you in. Uh, and again, we'll dig more into these as we get into the series. But those are common ways that we hurt each other in church. Here are the things that I want to encourage you to do to battle it. First is overlook. Sometimes the best thing you can do is overlook an offense. If you offend me, but I trust your heart, then you know what? I can overlook that offense. A person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Um, you know, uh, if, if somebody hurts me, they say something or they do something that hurts me, but I know them and I know their heart. 
And I know that, that probably I'm misinterpreting what they're saying or probably they're just having a bad day or any number of things. Then you know what? I can overlook that and I can do it with joy in my heart because I know their heart and I trust them. It's to your glory to be able to overlook an offense. Forgive. When somebody hurts you, whether it was on purpose or not, it is to your glory. It is to the unity of the church. It's a grace of God to be able to forgive. Right? We be kind and compassionate to one another. We forgive each other just as Christ God forgave, just as in Christ God forgave you. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Forgiving doesn't make what they did right. But it is right to do. Forgiveness doesn't make the pain they caused necessarily go away. But it's biblical. When you, when you forgive, what's happening is you are releasing someone from the debt they owe. Maybe that helps your relationship with them. But for sure, it keeps bitterness from building up in your heart. When you have unforgiveness in your heart, bitterness will increase. It's like a wound that doesn't get cleaned out, that gets infected. Pus oozes out. I know it's gross, but that's what happens. That's what happens when we have um, hurt that we don't forgive. It gets infected and it grows into bitterness and it oozes out. And we think, oh no, it's just between him and me. It's just between her and me. It just is what it is, but it will ooze out. And again, it may not cause me to leave the church, but it will cause me to withdraw. And it will cause divisiveness in the church and it will cause problems in the church. And Satan loves it. Forgive one another. What's the basis for that, Matt? Why do they deserve forgiveness? Maybe they don't, but neither did you. Neither did I, right? So let's be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave us. Confront. Sometimes when sin happens, we need to confront one another, right? Confront one another. And, and here's what we often do. We often look for reasons not to confront. We say, oh, I can overlook it. But you don't overlook it. You harbor it. You say, I'm overlooking it, but it, you still hold on to it. And if you're still holding on to it, then, then stop claiming that you're overlooking it and just go deal with it, right? If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. Maybe having the conversation will, will allow you to see their perspective. Maybe it will allow them to see your perspective. Maybe you'll get to a point where you can agree to move on and, and you fixed it. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony. Two or three witnesses. Deal with it. You know what Satan loves? Satan loves it when we don't deal with hurt. Because then it lingers and it festers and it causes a problem. So confront, confront leaders, staff, pastors, confront one another. Confront when we have sin that needs to be confronted. Don't shy away from it. And I'll tell you this, right? Don't be confused on a disagreement and a sin. Have conversations about disagreements. Have conversations about times and ways that we see things differently. Confront sin. Be patient. 
here's my worry that happens, right? Um, don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the redoing of your mind. Be patient. Don't act like the rest of the world does when they get hurt, when they lash out, when they cause pain. Don't become an offender because you've been offended. Resist the urge, the thing that Satan loves, when you're wounded, to tell everybody about it and why and how big of a deal it is and how you were wronged and how you were hurt. Don't become an offender because you've been offended. Don't take your hurt and lash out and hurt others. That's what the world does. That's not what you do. We fight for unity. And the last is pray. Pray. It's where we started, and it's where we end. We pray because this is a spiritual battle. We pray because you have wounds, I know you do. We pray because I have wounds. If you've been in the church for five minutes, wounds exist. And so we pray because it's only when we're in the Spirit of God It's only when the Holy Spirit is directing our lives. It's only when we are fully submitted to our Lord Jesus Christ that we can practice the graces that he gives us and that we can strive for the unity that he gives us and we can deal with hurt and wounds as they exist. As we go through this series, myself, Pastor David, we're going to talk a lot about letting go of wounds. And we're going to talk about healing And we're going to talk about digging in together. And we're going to talk about the sanctity of the church and the unity of the church. We're going to talk about all of those things throughout the series. But it starts with this, right? We end and start today with this call to be unified in prayer. Because just that endeavor itself will start to drive Satan out. And will start to bind us together. Because we are all in the same spot. We're going we're gonna to celebrate communion here together. Just let me read for you in, in Philippians 2, right? The communion table is, is this great equalizer, right? It, it's this place where we all come together. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to have the attitude of Christ. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in his spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. That's that's where we are. Have the attitude, he goes on to say, have the attitude of Christ, who even though he was God, didn't think of equality with God as something to be attained. It's the blood of Jesus that sets us free. We, we can demonstrate these graces. We can be unified in the Spirit. We can be unified in purpose. We can do all of that because the blood of Jesus sets us free. It's this great equalizer. When we come to the foot of the cross for the first time in salvation or now as we come to communion, we say thank you for the, the bread, which is his body that was broken. Thank you for the, the juice, which is the blood that was poured out. This forgiveness for our sins, that was our sin put on him in his broken body. And, and, and this, this newness of covenant that comes from the shedding of his blood that covers us. Right? One, we come there and, and, and we do that and, and we become made new in Christ and we're a new creation. But two, when we do that, Right? When we do it afresh and anew, 
It's like we say, okay, God, we're coming to you now, and I've got baggage that I want to put aside. And I've got your grace that I want to experience brand new. And we just make a commitment to move forward together. And that's why we're going to start with communion. And we're actually going to take communion together every week during this series as we just really dig in. Okay? But I want to encourage you to go ahead and take your, your uh, individual packet here. Take the top off and grab your bread and peel back the second one for your juice. And I know I said bread and some of you were like, yeah, I don't buy it. It's close enough. And as we take communion together, here's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that in Christ, we're forgiven and free. And I'm celebrating that in Christ, you are forgiven and you are free. And you're celebrating that in Christ, I am forgiven and I am free. It's this great equalizer where we wipe it clean. We say, let's just celebrate what God has done for us. And let's move forward together in unity. And so we do this as simply as um, Jesus explained it. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he passed it around, and he told his disciples, this represents my body. It's going to be broken for you. Your sins will be placed on it. When you eat it, remember me. And in the same way, he poured the cup and he passed the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that's in my blood that's poured out for you. Drink it and remember. And almost he's saying, drink it. Step into the new covenant of grace. Father God, we just love you so much. We thank you for the fact that you do something when we are made new in Christ. That You bring us to this great calling. And Father, we ask for your help to help us live a life worthy of the calling that you've given us. Help us to seek unity in the church. Help us to fight against the enemy of our souls who wants to use our different hurts to drive wedges and rip apart the body. Help us to stand firm in your grace and in doing so to storm the gates of hell and to bring your kingdom here in power. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.